Episode 63 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast is with Dr. Paul Comfort, who is a reader in strength and conditioning at Salford Uni. This was, I think it was about our fourth or fifth live episode, so Paul came to meet me in person. It was great to speak to him in person. We had a chat after about uh, the difference of doing these podcasts in person, so it was great to sit down with him and catch up about loads of different areas of S&C and sports science. We spoke about how the options for coaches has progressed over and developed over the years since he started out in the industry. We talked about, so we, at the time of the recording, we were only a few days after the UKSCA conference, so we spoke about the, his review of the UKSCA and what some of his biggest takeaways were, so that he had some really interesting views and opinions on um where coaches were at in terms of their development and and that related to the UKSA conference. We also talked about how his research has informed practice in football. We went into great detail on some strategies for Nordics and some of the different approaches people take uh, in terms of Nordic training. And then we dived into some weightlifting derivatives so when we should use them why we should use them and and where we should use them in the programming uh, and what that should look like for different players and different clubs there was loads more information as well so this was an action-packed episode loads of good information Um, I thought to be honest it was one of my um, one of the episode probably the best episode in terms of content in my opinion I think there was absolutely loads in there um, and I hope you take plenty from it just a, a quick mention, so at the time of this going out, we are one week away now from our Colchester United meeting. So on Wednesday, the 19th of February, from 6 till 9pm, we are going to be at Colchester United um, for our first meeting of 2020. So if you want to come down, meet new coaches, build your network, um, communicate with other coaches, talk about the challenges you face in your role, or if you're not currently in a role, how to get in a role. Um, and also watch the sports scientists from Colchester, Perry Blanchett and Kamal Ishmael present. Then come and join us at Colchester. Tickets are uh, available on the website, footballfitfed.com. And if you go to network meetings and events at the top, you'll be able to click on the Colchester tab and then you can get your ticket there. There are further discounts for our member, our community members you can get further discount on the meeting. So if you do want discount, you can go click on the community, join up to the community, and you can get further discounts on the meeting. But it'd be great to see as many coaches there as possible um, and catch up with Kamal and Perry down at Colchester. So I hope you enjoy the episode with Paul. Like I said, it was it was great to interview him and chat to him. And here it is. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 63. I am delighted to introduce our guest today, which is Dr. Paul Comfort from down the road at Salford University. Paul, thank you for coming through the, I don't know whether it was snow, sleet, rain, whatever that was, to to make it here this morning. You've had a, a tough walk down the road, but thank you very much for joining me. No problem. Thanks for the invite. It's great to have you on, man. And there's, there's uh, plenty of people that will know who you are, the work you've put out already, but it'd be great to dive into it today. So do you want to start with your background and then take us through some experiences and up to what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, no problem. I'll try and keep it brief so it doesn't bore everyone. Um, so I started off actually as a personal trainer before strength and conditioning was an industry in the UK. So going back 25 plus years. 
Um, I know I don't look that old, obviously, but um, yeah, started off personal training, but predominantly either working with business people that had a lot of money and were willing to spend the money back then because it personal training wasn't a big thing 25 plus years ago, or working with local athletes um, to try and enhance their performance because they wanted to make it further. Um, so a bit of a diverse mixture. Um, then I started my master's degree, um, and at that point there was nothing focused. You could do either general sports science, sports studies, or you had University of uh, or University College Chester, as it was then, that did exercise and nutrition science, or Chichester University that did physiology, biomechanics, or um, psychology, or related to sport. That was it. So you are going back quite a few years. Um, so I went to um, University College Chester and did my masters. Was still personal training, etc., all the way through that, and actually managing a gym and climbing facility, or all the sort of fitness and personal training side of it. Um, then I started working down at Southampton University. Um, did a year down there, then moved to a college in Essex, uh, working for the University of Essex, and then on to Middlesex University, uh, where I stayed for I think it's about six years. And all the way through that time was working either with university and college teams um, where they wanted some strength and conditioning support or working and consulting with local athletes, etc. Um, doing a bit of the TAS support with the Talented Athlete Scholarship Scheme. And then 12 years ago, moved up to University of Salford and basically started doing the same sort of thing here. Um, luckily, because of the density of sports clubs in this area and the number of partnerships the university had and still has with local sports teams, um, that meant that it was a really good opportunity for us to do research with good level athletes. I won't necessarily say highly trained because depending on the sport, they're not always highly trained. Um, but with high level athletes and really try and take some of that applied research forwards, um, consult with them, advise the sports scientists and the sort of multidisciplinary team on certain things they could do, whether it's training, whether it's some of the rehab side of things from some of my colleagues, or whether it was more the performance assessment, monitoring, testing and different training aspects. And also trying to steer our research in the direction that they wanted questions answered. Um, if it had never been done in that sport or if just nobody had looked at certain training methods, testing methods, etc. Um, so it's been really nice to be able to have a series of sort of academic posts which give me the freedom to do some research <clears throat> but also linked in to doing sort of consultancy work and spending a day a week or whatever time I've been given at different times to work with different clubs um, to sort of manage some of those partnerships embed the research in it, get our students in there, so it upskills the students as well. And so also, at the same time, while we're trying to collect data, monitor the athletes, I can't be in there multiple times per week doing that. There's no way I'm going to be allowed by the university to spend that amount of time in a club environment unless they were paying a lot of money. Um, so if we've got students embedded in there, undergraduate, masters, PhD students, they can collect all of that data under our support and guidance, and then we can answer a lot of those research questions which is great because it keeps it very, very applied, or as applied as we can make it, um, but also keeps it real world so that other people can take the findings of that research and then hopefully be able to apply that in a context which is real world rather than in a lab looking at single cells in a Petri dish, which when we extrapolate that out to whole body is probably going to tell us nothing at all. Nothing wrong with that sort of research. Personally, I think you need to reverse engineer it see what, observe what's happening, what works, what doesn't work, how can we refine it, then why does it work? 
if we can figure out why it works right the way down at a cellular level or as far down that chain as we need to go, then we can refine what we're doing and again reevaluate was that more effective and then reverse engineer again and try and understand why and how it works and then keep refining that process. But the end goal, if we're working with athletes, is to make them better, to make them run faster, jump higher, etc. Um, yeah, so that's really my sort of um, my background. Um, got involved with the UKSCA as a founder member when they first started up um, years ago. I think I was a 16th member. Um, and became a member of the NSCA as soon as I sort of had the opportunity, did their certification, did the UKSCA accreditation as soon as that was available um, to really try and hopefully move myself on and progress myself, but also where I can try and make sure that those organisations can develop and improve as well. We must have seen a fair transition throughout the years on the opportunities that are available in sports science and, and S&C then. Yeah, like I said, when I first started, there was nothing at all ever advertised 25 years ago for strength and conditioning. <clears throat> the term wasn't really used in the UK. The NSCA was running in America. Um, in fact, I remember for my 21st birthday being given their Essentials of Strength, strength Training and Conditioning textbook, which I read within a couple of weeks. Um, I'm thinking, why haven't we got something like this in the UK? Obviously, I'm 21 years old. I wasn't in the position to try and drive any of that forwards. Um, but yeah, the opportunities have been, <clears throat> they've sort of increased exponentially. Early on, it was a fitness coach, uh, and that would encompass almost anything that a club would want you to do. Now through to where you might even have you know, a strength coach, a power coach, a conditioning coach. So sometimes that's subdivided across the different sort of areas of fitness that you might train um, now there's a lot more academy level jobs they were always more elite um, previously a lot more in um, female sport as well um, semi, some in semi-professional sport which is brilliant because actually it's the academy level and the semi-pro where you can probably have far more of a, an impact um, you know if you're the SNC coach at a Premier League football team where you're earning less per year than a football player earns in a day they're not necessarily going to listen to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, and there isn't that drive for them to necessarily develop and, and push their own physical ability because they're at the highest level they can get to. Whereas if you're at the lower level or you're wanting to be that person and aspiring to be like that, um, I think it's a bit easier to get the buy-in. And you've also got a little bit more license to do what you want to do, informed by education, research, best practice, etc. as well. Um, whereas it's sometimes dictated it the more elite level I was going to say that so there's a lot more money a lot more pressure involved at those clubs isn't there and I don't think people realise sometimes the amount of opportunities that are available at semi-pro clubs they're, they're dying out for people to come in and offer their services aren't they so it's a big opportunity yeah there's, there's loads of opportunities and actually because it's the area where you can really you know use a little bit of trial and error reflect on what works what doesn't work and everyone can do that um Case in point was actually a couple of people from the FA at the UKSA football conference um, last week gave sort of examples of things they'd done, thought it was going to go really well, and it just completely fell on its ass, and it was awful, just didn't work. So they had to sort of put their head in their hands and think, oh, you know, what the hell went wrong? How do I get make this better next time? It's not necessarily the session that you want you have to sometimes compromise to get the buy-in from the players so they actually do what you want first of all. Yeah. And it's not the ideal session, sometimes far from it. But once you've got the buy-in, you can gradually change and progress those sessions so they become closer to what the ideal would be. Yeah. 
And you mentioned there about UKSCA with, with sort of days after the, the conference at the moment. So what was your takeaways from the, the conference? I think, first of all, it was, it was great to see 200 plus um, people from sort of the, the SNC, sports science, physio sort of professions working within football, a few from Gaelic football, and I'm sure there were people from other sporting disciplines as well. Great to see them there and wanting to learn. People scribbling frantically during some of the present presentations, which was great. One of the take-home points for me was really some of the stuff that I think is basic and common knowledge from the frantic scribbling at times isn't necessarily um, basic in common knowledge because um, there were some things which I thought would have just been a bit of background information people and people were scribbling copious amounts of notes on um, some really simple things. The other aspect of it as well is I think there's there's definitely an issue, and I see this at all conferences, uh, in terms of the terminology used and semantics, um, etc., uh, which can end up being misleading. So one case in point is <coughs> um, force absorption. The body doesn't absorb a force. So if you're trying to decelerate, you have to produce a force or an impulse of the same magnitude um, as your momentum, basically, so the, your mass and the, the speed that you're, you're moving at, to decelerate yourself. You don't absorb it, your body has to produce a force in order to counteract that momentum. <clears throat> and because you have to do that, you then have to be able to generate those forces of a sufficient magnitude and at a sufficient speed. So you've got to get strong and you've got to not just be strong, but be able to produce those forces rapidly enough. If you think about how fast you might be sprinting in a game of football or any team sport to decelerate as quickly as possible to evade your opponent. Um, so sometimes when the term force absorption is used, it can be misleading. And if you were talking about rapid force production of a very high magnitude, that's far more important because then that really highlights the fact that athletes do have to be strong. And we, and we spoke a little bit before we started recording about strength and some of the confusion that's out there in terms of, I think, possibly football um, specifically, but I know it will carry over to other sports about certain players that, that say they don't strength train and I think people take that as a big picture that we don't necessarily need to need to strength train. There's not, there's not much of an emphasis on it. We don't necessarily need it in our practice, but I mean, a lot, I know a lot of your work and a lot of your studies have been around elements of strength training. So what, what are your views on that? You know, any athlete that's very gifted, talented, technically excellent, which at the elite level they're going to be, um, will still be able to perform well, even if they don't do any structured strength training or even if the strength training is suboptimal, which you do see a lot. You know, you see a lot of times when people say they're strength training and it's sets of 10. Um, well, that's what DeLorme was doing back in 1948 and decided that he should progress on to sets of eight, six, etc., and increase load. <clears throat> Unfortunately, that sometimes goes reverse and the progression is increased reps, not increased loading and decreased repetitions. So you can perform well without it, um, and if you're not already strong, training on the pitch, jumping, sprinting, deceleration will make you stronger, but it's not optimal. It's not going to make you as strong as you could be. Uh, it's very difficult to provide progressive overload in the way that you can accurately and appropriately monitor it like you can in a gym-based environment. That doesn't mean everybody needs to be back squatting. Um, some people can't back squat in other team sports if you go into a rugby league and rugby union some of them can't grip the bar to be able to do a back squat because their shoulders are so battered that's unlikely to be the same in football um, but if there's a reason they can't perform 
a specific exercise, there are so many other alternatives. If you think, if you use a squat as an example, <clears throat> you can do back squat, front squat, split squats, rear foot elevated split squat, lunging patterns, any of those types of tasks with load. And it's about progressive overload, so it's very easy to progressively overload those tasks. Um, I think sometimes people see the fact that with a high load it's a low velocity and think, well, your sport is produced at a high velocity and that's the problem. Um, but if you look at how quickly you produce force, it's really about the intent to produce force. There's a really good review by um, Tony Blazevich in Sports Medicine, just published this year, um, so within the last month or so, which looks at training interventions for improving rapid force development and rate of force development. And they pretty much conclude that training per se improves it. If you have progressive overload, it will get better. Um, but the, the intent to move a high load <clears throat> or to produce a high force rapidly is probably more important than moving at really high velocities because then you don't always produce those high forces. Mm. So you can produce the force quickly, but the magnitude of force may not be as good as it could be. Although if you're not well trained, you will adapt to anything. So if you've never done strength training, just doing bodyweight exercises are probably going to make you stronger. Yeah. Um, but as you become more and more well trained and stronger, it's harder to try and improve your strength without using the sort of properly periodized and progressive overload. I think it ties into a few things, doesn't it? And I think culture is a big part of that, isn't it? And I think it's too easy to say that it, it's not embedded in the culture of football because it's very much dependent on the player and the club and the coach that's involved in that, isn't it, as well? But I think that intent, I think you see that, don't you? Like In terms of when, when players are training, you can see the ones that do have that intent and the ones that don't. And I think, is it, is it West Side had the analogy that you lift... Um, heavy weights like the light and lightweights yeah. like the heavy um, yeah. I think that ties in with that as well doesn't it yeah and you know there are times when you probably won't work with that intent you know if someone's never performed a lift before you're going to make it slow controlled so they can ingrain the movement pattern but once they're technically competent <clears throat> the aim should be to try and accelerate that barbell dumbbell kettlebell whatever that external load is as rapidly as possible and it's not a difficult concept but it regularly gets lost um, and that's also part of the problem if you're trying to move as quickly as possible as soon as you become less and less stable so if you go to a unilateral task completely unilateral on one leg not a split squat because that's not quite unilateral it's not technically bilateral it's somewhere in between you're never going to produce the same level of intent because you're unstable that doesn't mean that those types of training aren't great but it's never going to optimize force production although it will allow the translation of that maximum force production that you might have developed during a bilateral task to a more sport specific environment where a lot of the time you are on one leg but it's about phasing those different aspects in or not using one exclusively mm. so if I design a resistance training program it would always have some bilateral and some unilateral in there depending on what the emphasis is for that athlete um, but if you've got somebody who's phenomenally strong, you know, if you had somebody that was squatting two and a half times body mass on a, on a back squat, squatting full depth, they're going to spend less time working on that and more time working on how that would transfer to sport because they're already really strong. Yeah. And you're not going to be able to get them dramatically stronger in a short period of time. But if their ability to transfer, transfer that to sprinting, jumping, change direction is limited, then you'd have to have far more time focusing on the task which may allow that transfer. Unfortunately... In the UK, most people actually would probably just benefit from getting stronger. Yeah, 
Yeah, definitely. So we're going to um, dive into some of your your research and uh, I know things that you've spoke about before and, and some areas that you spoke about at UKSCA. But just as a, a general sort of question, in terms of your research, how how would you think? How would you say that has informed practice in football? <clears throat> well. We've been, luckily, not just myself, but the, the team that I, I work with at the University of Salford, so sort of the, the key people are Dr. Paul Jones, Dr. John McMahon, and then our group of PhD students um, that probably collaborate the most. There are a few other people, so if it's more injury-related, it would be um, Dr. Lee Harrington and Dr. Alan Munro. Uh, but most of the time, we get invited in to look at the performance side of things. And if they ask me about injury prevention, rehabilitation, I'd point them to Lee Harrington because um, he's in a far better position to answer those questions and has worked in that area for decades. Um, so we get invited into a lot of different football clubs, sometimes to advise them, sometimes to present some of our research to them, sometimes to look at their practices and give them feedback on what they're doing and how they're doing it. So the nice aspect is we've been invited in to a lot of clubs in the local area um, just to observe what they're doing with their monitoring. So that normally ends up being towards the end of the season. They've planned what they're going to do at the start of pre-season and how they're going to monitor athletes over an entire season. So they'll get us to go in there and say, right, okay, are we doing this correctly? Are we performing the testing correctly? Does all of this meet the sort of minimum standards that we need to meet for the data that we want to get out of it? Uh, or they may be having certain issues with some of the data they have collected over the previous season and want us to sort of firefight and try and figure out why. But at the same time, then it's sometimes looking at the metrics that they're using. If you look at some of the um, automated uh, force plate systems as an example, so the two that spring to mind are Force Dex and Hawking Dynamics, which a lot of clubs have, they'll spit out 100 plus variables, which is brilliant because I could get you to jump now uh, or do whatever test we're going to do and in under a second we've got 100 plus variables that we can look at make you do a couple more repetitions to see if it's uh, they're stable measurements they're reliable um, and then we can make inferences on that but if you've got 100 plus measurements or variables coming out of that we need to know which of those are meaningful which really are going to impact you and which can I use to make decisions on my training practices um, and also if we've done a jump test that tells us about rapid, dynamic, ballistic force production, but it doesn't tell us anything about strength. So people will and have done in the past, and I would imagine some people still do, try and use the jump to assess strength. It doesn't tell you anything about strength. It tells you about your ability to express force rapidly in a dynamic situation, but it's not maximal force production. You will get peak force, but that also depends on your jumping strategy and how you cue somebody to jump. Mm. Um, so your coaching cue has to be precise all the time. So it's then about saying, well, okay, these are your testing batteries that you do. You've got this missing. You haven't assessed strength or maximal force production, or you've only done that, but you haven't assessed it in a more sports-specific environment. Or you're saying you're assessing agility. Again, it could be semantics. It might be a change of direction test where there isn't a reactive component to a stimulus. So we'll look at what they're doing and then advise them on how they can put all of that data together, refine it down so it's user-friendly, so that the metrics hopefully are metrics which the coaches can understand because they want feedback. More importantly, the players understand. So if you're telling the player they've got a deficit, 
but you're using biomechanical terms, they're probably not going to understand what that term means. So it's trying to use metrics which are appropriate for them and will inform them they can understand, you'll get some buy-in, and then they'll want to know, hopefully, um, how they've improved, how they compare to their teammates, their opponents, other squads of athletes. Obviously, we don't go in and say to one squad, oh, the squad up the road are doing this, but there's published data out there that they can compare to. Um, so a lot of the stuff we end up doing is really looking at the monitoring of those athletes. Um, they will ask us about training practices, how they can, you know, if strength is a problem or if jump performance is a problem, what might be the best ways to enhance that in that environment. And again, we know, or we've got a good idea what the best ways are to increase strength, what the best ways are to increase um, jump performance, depending on your individual characteristics. If you're strong, but you can't jump high, you've got to do more ballistic and dynamic training to improve your ability to express that force. If you're really weak, but you've got a 60 centimeter vertical jump, you're using your force very, very efficiently and effectively. So then you just need to get stronger. Um, so it's looking at the trade-off between how you can express the force that you can express and if you can actually express a sufficient amount of force. But with that in mind, we might know what the best way is. Or we might think we know at the moment until some more research comes out and proves us wrong. Uh, but we might think we know the best way. But you also have to think about it in the context of that club, their culture, what type of training they do. Because it's no good going in and saying, well, right, we all need you to do weightlifting. We all need you to squat. Kettlebell exercise would be the best if they don't do that. Mm. So you can go into some clubs, they won't have a single barbell. Normally because a coach injured themselves while they were training, not because anything wrong with an athlete. So the coaches said, no, we're not doing that. <clears throat> but there are, you know, there are real life examples like that out there. So you have to go with what they currently do and have to think about trying to refine what they do. Not saying you must do it this way, but right, what are your current practices? How do you do this? Is the loading appropriate? Is the volume appropriate? Is it sequenced in the right way? Um, and then give them advice on, on those sorts of areas. So you've, you've got to be realistic. There's no good going and saying you must do it this way when you know full well they're never going to actually adopt any of those practices. So it has to be a real discussion um, with the people in the different teams. And sometimes you'll go back later on that season or the end of the season to, again, give them some input and insight and maybe see if there's something different or better they could do. They might start really basic to see if it works and then want to actually make it more advanced and more complex later. And sometimes you'll see they've adopted perfectly what you suggested. Other times they haven't done anything like it. That doesn't mean that they thought what you suggested was rubbish. Sometimes just time constraints... Um, other members of the support team that have said, no, we're not doing that. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, they haven't done it. But then you can look at alternative strategies. Um, and that's the key thing. It's almost doing your needs analysis of not just what does the athlete need and what's required for the sport, but in that culture, in that environment, what can they do? Because, again, if you're using a weightlifting exercise, if everyone on a senior squad in any sport has never done weightlifting, your primary lifts are not going to be weightlifting exercises because you have to get them competent first. Mm -hmm. While they will improve, that's probably not optimal for them at that point. So you probably need to upskill them in that. And again, the same goes for plyometrics, change of direction tasks, etc. If they've never performed them, that's not going to be your primary method of training them. That's going to have to be a skill-based, skill-learning process that they go through before it's really going to give them adaptations. Um, at a sort of muscular level so they really see improvements. Otherwise, they're just getting better at performing that task from practicing performing that task. 
because I, I was going to dive into uh, weightlifting and some derivatives, but I think it'd be great to go into it now because you, you're touching on there about getting, essentially getting what you want out of the weightlifting derivative there, aren't you? Like, yep. And a lot of the time when people haven't done it, I mean, it's a sport <coughs> in itself, isn't it? Like weightlifting, so it takes time to learn. Yep. So if, if clubs have got, have got that in place and they've got that, got that culture in place, what does that generally look like from your point of view in terms of when you use it and yep. where you use it? It varies dramatically. It tends to be used more in more of a long-term athlete development model where you're trying to improve the athlete's ability to perform a whole range of different tasks and improve athleticism in general. Uh, and if you've got a really good developmental model through an academy system, that seems to work really well. It tends to get lost once you get to a more elite or a more senior level. Um, no idea why. It tends to be a more cultural thing. Um, actually, we've seen that in some clubs, when you go from academy level to um, up through the, sort of the, the development squads to first team, performances sometimes drop off in terms of strength and power development because a lot of that's taken away because of fixture congestion, etc. But in terms of how it's implemented, people do it one of two ways. They'll either teach the full lifts initially just as part of that long-term athlete development model. And then they'll refine it and use derivatives of those exercises to try and emphasize force development with pulling variations or emphasize the more ballistic component, which could be a, a jump shrug. It might be a hex bar jump, which actually gives you comparable kinetics and kinematics. So your velocities, your forces are similar if the load's the same. Um, others will do the reverse. Others will use the derivatives because they're very easy to learn. So if you can do a hip hinge, if you can do a Romanian deadlift, you can do a jump shrug. Because all you do is hip hinge down to the knee. And once the barbell reaches the knee, you cue the athlete to jump. And as long as they've got sufficient knee extension during that hip hinge, you have to do a transition or a double knee bend to get into a position you can jump. Because if your knees are extended and you're not dorsiflexed, you can't jump. <clears throat> so that happens naturally without cueing them to try and perform that transition or triple uh, or double knee bend, which a lot of time people struggle with. So if they can hip hinge, you get them to hinge down to the knee, cue them to jump, and they'll jump. You can do it with a really light load, and you're trading the velocity end of that force velocity continuum, and we can progressively add load to that. Um, one thing people get concerned of is then landing with a heavy load, but it's actually counterintuitive. As load goes up, landing forces decrease. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, if you're jumping with no load, you can jump quite high. You stick 40 or 60 kilos on a barbell, you don't jump very high. So your jump height could drop down to four or five centimeters, in which time you've got minimal time for acceleration back down to the ground. So you hit the ground with a relatively low force. Mm -hmm. You also find that people improve the landing strategy if there's load on the shoulders or in their hands because they've got to dissipate that force and flex ankle, knee and hip on landing to make sure that it's not uncomfortable when they land. Um, so landing strategy, not always, but the majority of the time improves if they've got a little bit of load in their hands. They tend not to land with a stiff strategy. Mm. Um, so it, it does vary across um, different clubs, the way it's implemented. Some don't use any at all. And there are alternatives that you can use for all the velocity end. So any type of plyometric task, if the athletes are conditioned for it, like I said, hex bar jumps, using dumbbells, um, loaded jump squats, etc. they'll all work. Uh, and they're pretty easy to do. And you'll get similar benefits from it. At the top end, if you're trying to work 
um, high loads and trying to be ballistic and dynamic and go through that full extension. The limitation if you're doing a squatting pattern and not leaving the ground is about the last 40 to 45% of the range of motion is deceleration. And that's the range of the motion where you're normally generating a sufficient impulse to accelerate with a jump, with a sprint, etc. So you're missing out on a little bit there. Whereas if you use weightlifting exercises with a sufficient load, it's really only when you get to that point you start just before plantar flexion that you start to decelerate if the load's heavy enough. Mm. And then if you use a pulling derivative, which we've done quite a bit of our, our research on, um, also in collaboration with uh, Dr. Tim Sukumau over in America, with the pulling variations, because you're no longer catching the barbell, you're not limited to what your 1RM is on a clean, etc. So you can actually use much higher loads as long as they've got the postural control and they're competent enough to then take the bar either from the floor, from the knee, from mid-thigh, depending on the variation you're using, and really overload that final phase of the sort of triple extension. And it's really easy. We can get everyone performing a mid-thigh pull if we've eliminated the catch phase or a counter movement shrug so you stand upright dip to mid thigh and then rapidly extend we can get everyone performing that within a couple of minutes unless they you know if you've got somebody who's a complete motor moron but if they're an athlete they shouldn't be that bad I say shouldn't because there are one or two but um, it's not a difficult task to perform Um, but you need to ingrain appropriate technique before you go to heavy loads and you can progressively increase the loading as they become more and more competent and the postural control is there. And some people will be able to pick, up the, pick it up really easy, some won't. Um, don't get me wrong, weightlifting exercises themselves are brilliant and there's a huge amount of benefits, but sometimes you don't have the time to coach people to perform the full lift because you might have a very time-constrained um, period for conditioning. And sometimes you've got to get as much bang for your buck in which case let's go with your exercises which they can do but it's that long-term development model you should be slowly refining and improving their technique and introducing those exercises if you can the, the danger is some people will go through the motions if they're not catching the barbell and it's it looks like they've just stood up straight and gone onto their toes mm-hmm. in which case they probably need to be doing something where they're jumping because then they have to accelerate through the range of motion to get off the ground or where they're catching the barbell Because in your mind, if you're thinking, I've got to get under this bar and catch it, even in a power clean position, not a full clean, um, you've got to put the intent in to accelerate the barbell up to a high enough height so you can get under it and catch it. Mm. Whereas if you're just pulling, some people go through the motions. That being said, some people do the reverse. Some people, when they know they're going to catch, will cut the pull short and they won't fully extend. Mm. You can cue them, you can coach them. Most people have smartphones, iPads, different tablets, etc. You can film them and show them. And if they know what it's like, sometimes people pick it up straight away. Other times they still don't quite get it. So in that case, if they're cutting the pull short to get under it and catch it, it's easier just to focus on a pulling variation or mix the two up. If you're doing a set of three reps, do two where you just pull and on the third one, drop under to catch. Because you might ingrain that full extension pattern with the pull and then you have that rapid... Um, period of sort of turning the bar over dropping under the bar trying to decelerate your mass and the barbell um, and get a bit of eccentric loading although if you're competent you don't really get much eccentric loading from catching the barbell it's really just decelerating your mass because you're catching that barbell right near its peak displacement Um, the nice thing about all those weightlifting derivatives is that there's a huge 
range and variation of things that you can use so it gives you a whole load of tools in your toolbox and it doesn't always look like you're trying to do a weightlifting exercise if you're just doing mid-thigh pull or a pull from the knee or a hang pull so hinge down to the knee and then perform the task it's really easy to coach and teach and if you've got people that are worried about what you're performing especially with younger academy athletes etc might you know people might think they're more susceptible to injury etc as much as they can get a huge amount of benefits from learning every one of those derivatives and the full lifts you can still get the benefits of some of them that might not be ideal but it's not an ideal world so you have to work within the constraints of the environment you're in just a quick update on our online community. So we have got our bonus Q&A with Fergus Connolly on the community. So that's now live. So Fergus was great. He did a podcast for us, but he also did some, he answered some bonus questions from our community members. So that video is now live available on the community. We've also got our MK Dons discount code. So to go along with the Colchester meeting, the MK Dons discount code is now available on the community. So if you're looking to come to the MK Dons meeting, make sure you grab the code off there so you can get discount on that meeting. And there's also been some great discussions on our forum. So there's a discussion going on on sprinting mechanics and the timing of coaching and also on coach health. So if you want to become a community member, go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign up there and you get one month free and it is only $4.99 after that. Here's the rest of the episode with Paul. Yeah, definitely. And I was going to say that because we'll have some coaches that are listening that will have no access to gyms, even barbells yep. a lot of times. So they... I think coaches have got to understand that the the reason we're using derivatives is that there's a lot of options out there, isn't there? We don't all have yeah. to be doing power cleans all yeah. the time. Yeah, and there's there's some clubs you go into. I've been into a a, a couple in in the area where the academy setup is really ran by um, people that believe wholeheartedly in weightlifting, uh, and athletes from a young age are performing the full lifts. And if they're competent to do that, that's brilliant. But actually, in some environments, they're really pushed to be competitive um, and get as much out of the exercises as you can and not sort of go through the more technical aspect and not worrying about the loading. Um, or sometimes there's just fear within the staff, within the club, that it might increase the risk of injury, etc. There's no evidence to substantiate that, mm-hmm. um, especially if you've got good technique and if you develop that technique. But you can really build it into that long-term athlete development program. The difficulty is when you go to a more senior squad and then let's say you're you're lucky and you've got six or seven athletes that have come through your academy system. They might all be competent at performing every exercise you want, not just weightlifting exercises, plyometrics, anything you want them to do in the gym, etc. But where have the rest of your squad come from? And they haven't just come from academies around the UK, they'll have come from all over the world who have completely different philosophies. So suddenly you've got a squad of, say, 30 players. Six can do everything you want them to do. The rest can't. So then you have to find alternatives. Yeah. And you have to find things which they're not going to be fearful of, that you might get buy-in for, that can be made fun sometimes, depending on the athletes. So <clears throat> it's really a case of using whatever you can to elicit the adaptive responses that that individual needs. Um, and that's the reality of training athletes yeah it's context isn't it yeah and it's the same across all sports it doesn't matter whether it's um, football whether it's rugby league rugby union Olympic sports track and field etc you've really got to use what you can and 
you know, if you go into a club and you want everyone for whatever reason, whatever your rationale is to do a full depth back squat, well, not everyone's going to be able to do that. There are some real benefits to it. Um, but if everyone can't do it, not everyone will be programmed in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may want to develop their ability to do it, but they may have injuries, so they might never be able to do it. Uh, so you've just got to use whatever the alternatives are. Yeah. And it may not be what would be considered by somebody to be optimal, but you use what is best for that individual to develop the specific attributes that they need to develop. And if the athlete hates doing those exercises, don't program it, whatever the exercise is, because they're not going to comply with it. They're not going to stick to it. You'll turn your back and they'll tell you they've done the exercises and they haven't done anything or they've mm. gone through the motions mm. and then you've not got that intent. So it's pointless. Yeah, no, definitely. So ju- just to move it on, I think it'd be great to um, get your views on hamstrings. So diving into some information on hamstrings. So, First of all, because we'll, we'll go into Nordics in a little bit, or you can tie it into this yep. bit as well, but what are consi- some considerations we should make in terms of hamstring training with our players? Okay, so <clears throat> to keep it really simple, get the hamstrings as strong as possible. Um, and that can be through a range of different exercises. If you look at all of the research which has come out of Australia with <clears throat> Timmins, Opar, um, Shield, etc., you know, from their hamstring research group, they've done a huge amount of research looking at Nordic hamstring curls and the forces during them. And there's a pretty clear pattern that stronger hamstrings during a Nordic hamstring curl get injured less and are at a lower risk of injury. That doesn't mean that it prevents injuries, but it does decrease the risk of those injuries. Think about it, if, if a tissue, whether it's your muscle, your tendon, can tolerate a higher load, or if the hamstring can produce a higher force, the tendons attached to either end of it can then cope with a higher force because that force that the muscle produces has to get applied to the bones through the tendons, mm-hmm. so they will adapt. So that improves the tolerance of those tissues to that load. Their research also shows that if you get a longer bicep femoris fascicle, So if the fascicle length increases, that also reduces injury risk and injury occurrence. So that's pretty simple. We need to get the hamstrings stronger and the fascicles longer. So to do that, getting them stronger is relatively easy. We can make any muscle stronger from subjecting it to load. So with a hamstring, it could be any hamstring dominant exercise, Romanian deadlift, good morning, um, any form of hip hinge movement, so that could be a hyperextension type exercise, um, Russian curl, Romanian, uh, Romanian deadlift, razor curl, Nordic hamstring, standard leg curl, like you'll get in any commercial gym. And if you go through a process of progressive overload, the hamstring gets stronger. Pretty easy. Then you need to consider fascicle length. And if you train the hamstrings at a long fascicle length, so with a knee extended performing a hip hinge type movement, so again, that's the hyperextension, Romanian deadlift, good morning. Um, Those types of exercises have been shown to increase fascicle length as well. If you do a standard leg curl, or if you do things like um, a razor curl, that doesn't increase fascicle length. So there is an issue with that. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it but probably don't do those exercises in season because if you're shortening the fascicles, that potentially increases the risk of injury or will predispose them to a higher risk of injury. So we need some of those hip hinge type movements 
eccentric exercises with true eccentric overload, so more than you can do concentrically. So whatever you do, don't do Nordic hamstring exercises with assistance where you can do the full range of motion and come back up for injury prevention mm -hmm. because that isn't true eccentric overload. You need to hit a break point. If somebody's awful, so if I'm doing them, I haven't got a good range of motion, my body mass isn't that light, so obviously it makes it a little bit more difficult because the force you produce is related to your body mass or the force that's applied is related to that. So if you've got a really limited range of motion, fine, give somebody some assistance in whichever way. Is it a bungee cord? Is it with um, you know, a Kaiser machine with some, um, some resistance added to that? So you can get a greater range of motion, but they should still hit a break point at some point to get that true eccentric overload. And that's what tends to, the mechanism isn't fully understood, lead to the longer fascicle lengths. But if you're doing that, it's not like normal resistance training. It's a very, very high intensity. So Romanian deadlift, you could program X, you know, five sets of five repetitions at 85% of your 1RM. Don't do five sets of five reps on a Nordic hamstring curl because if you're loading it appropriately, it's a really high volume. Uh, so you need a small amount. There's a good review by um, one of my PhD students, Matt Cuthbert, published last month in Sports Medicine that looks at um, the dosages of Nordic hamstring curls required to elicit an adaptive response. And you need a pretty low volume. Mm -hmm. And we're also looking at some research now to try and find out what volumes we need. There's a couple of other studies published recently that have already also shown um, lower volumes of Nordic hamstring curls are really effective. So don't program them with the, if you look at some of the older studies, they use sets of 12, 10, 8. Some recommendations out there are three sets of 10 or three sets of 15. Before you program any exercise, please give it a go. Mm. And if you can do one set of 15, let alone three sets of 15, then I will bow down to you and, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you'd be a god in the terms of hamstring strength. But you should be breaking on every single one of those. You shouldn't be reaching the floor. If you can reach the floor, add load, make it harder. So you've got to be conservative. That type of eccentric loading causes a lot of muscle soreness. That reduces quite rapidly if you perform it regularly. Not three sets of 10 or 15 regularly, but a small dose. Um, so really to train the hamstrings to make them stronger, strength training with hamstring dominant exercises but either at long muscle lengths, so hip hinge type movements, or eccentric dominant exercises. That doesn't mean you can't use a leg curl. <clears throat> you could do a leg curl, and you could get a load which is more than your concentric 1RM. You can curl it under with both legs, and it might be, it might be your 1RM, and then you lower it with one leg. The first one, you'll lower under control. The second will be harder. The third will be more difficult. So you can phase it in progressively. You can give variation then. Um, and that could be a standing leg curl, a seated, a lying, whichever you want it to do. Um, if, and in some cases people say, I just don't like Nordics, they're not functional. Well, if the function of the Nordic is to increase eccentric hamstring strength, it's the most effective thing that we've seen based on the research, apart from maybe isokinetic training. But if you've got one isokinetic dynamometer, good luck trying to train your whole squad with that. So you might as well just forget that. Um, so it's actually relatively easy to do it, but you need low doses, um, high intensity, low dose. It's like with anything, if you, the higher the intensity goes, the lower the volume should be, but people don't always progress them in that way. And with a Nordic, until you can almost reach the floor, you don't really need to do a much higher volume. You could progressively increase it, but be conservative. Yeah. The worst thing you can do 
is <coughs> throw in too high a volume of Nordics, every player turns up the next day. Not saying the hamstrings are sore, but if it's football, it's probably that they've pulled the hamstring because mm-hmm. they're not used to muscle soreness in the same way um, as you might get with other sports because they generally don't do resistance training and train at that intensity. They'll think they've injured themselves. If your whole squad comes in or a percentage of your squad comes in like that, you'll be banned from doing that exercise. So build up progressively. It might mean that you don't get any real benefits for the first three, four, five weeks. But does that matter? No, not really. At least they are complying to those exercises. The review that I mentioned um, by Matt Cuthbert, my PhD student, one of the key things that he identified in is that during most of the training interventions that have been done, the compliance rates are really low. And then there was also a study... um, published a few years ago, which showed that even though we know that things like Nordic hamstring curls and that type of exercise can reduce injury risk, they're really poorly adopted. It's not surprising. For the first time you throw it in, is a set of 12, a set of 10, a set of 8. I wouldn't do it again. You probably can't do it again for the next week or more because you're so sore. And then that will compromise their ability to do anything on the pitch. So you have to phase it in progressively. Um, there are a couple of studies out there um, which also look at things like high-speed running. And one of our PhD students, uh, Nick Ripley, has just completed a training intervention which we're pushing him to try and get published as soon as possible, compare, comparing Nordic hamstring curls to um, high-speed running. So it was pretty simple, 25-metre sprints, all-out sprints, maximal effort, um, starting off at, I think it was 250 metres, so 10 sprints, building up to 350 metres, so it was progressive overload. Mm -hmm. If they got faster, that would have created more overload because the shank would be moving at a higher velocity, therefore more force required to decelerate the shank during the terminal swing phase of sprinting. And progressive overload on the Nordics. So if they were almost performing the full range of motion, load was was added, or they moved their hands from by their sides to across their chest to above their head. And we had phenomenal improvements from progressing it in that way. Um, Both groups improved. The greatest improvements were in those that did the Nordics, but we still had substantial improvements, which if you look back at that research on the the quadrant of dooms having long and strong muscle fascicles, everyone improved so that we would have noticeably reduced um, the probability of injury from from both of those training interventions. Um, the interesting thing is even the control group got better nowhere near as much as the other two groups There's much smaller magnitude in terms of the change in fascicle length and strength they didn't do any Nordics they didn't do any high speed running but within their training program they were doing Romanian deadlifts once a week and that still created some adaptations <clears throat> now the nice thing about that is that shows that you only need a relatively small volume of that type of exercise they still got better mm. So adding focused hamstring training, focused hamstring training of the right type of exercise will create an adaptive response. It may not be optimal. Mm. What we really need to know is what happens if we combine all of that? We didn't have enough individuals to be able to have a group where they did Nordic hamstring curls, um, some high-speed running, and the Romanian deadlift and throw all of that in there. Um, that would be ideal. There's loads of other options for that. You know, would a... Uh, would a hyperextension be as good as a Romanian deadlift? Um, would some other type of exercise instead of sprinting be better? We don't know. Mm. Um, but 
those modalities work. So actually what that tells us is if we use a low dose of Nordics, RDLs and sprinting, we're probably going to mitigate injury risk as much as possible. We definitely need the sprinting in season because you're going to be sprinting in a match. Yeah. Um, we probably need to develop the tolerance of the tissues using RDLs, Nordics, etc. prior to doing high volumes of um, sprint training if they've just come back from the off-season because they probably haven't done any of that training. And another one of our PhD students, uh, Charlie Owen, has got some really interesting data that shows two weeks off over Christmas and all the adaptations which have occurred across pre-season and the rest of, or the start of the season, almost revert back to baseline from two weeks of not performing Nordics. Unless they've been performing that for over 12 months. <clears throat> so we followed that up for another year, and the second year, we had a much smaller decrease in fascicle length and force. At the same time, when you go to the off-season, off again, all of them had a big drop-off in um, Nordic hamstring force and muscle fascicle length. So we need to keep doing some of that. So you need a small dose in season. So one of the other things we're looking at is actually some research funded by um, the Football Association, which is uh, Matt Cuthbert's PhD, is looking at microdosing training. So we've started off with microdosing Nordics. So all we did with one group, and it's only pilot data at the moment, we haven't got a large enough sample size because with, we started off with a high number of players, some had international duties, some picked up niggling little injuries, so somebody hurt their toe, somebody hurt their ankle, so they couldn't do Nordics. Not quite sure why you can't do Nordics, but that was what they were told. No, you're off training today. Um, so they missed a sufficient number of sessions for them to be excluded from the, from the data. So we looked at what they were doing in training. They were doing that squad of athletes were doing 18 repetitions in a week. So they were doing, um, what would it work out? Three sets of three twice per week, so 18 repetitions. So all we did is split that down into three sets of two three times per week so that the same total amount of volume is being performed in a week, but over smaller dosages. So you're less likely to get any form of um, delayed onset muscle soreness. And it's very easy to throw in a couple of sets of Nordics at any point. It doesn't have to be in a structured S&C session. Now, just from that pilot data, like I said, we do need to expand the data set. The athletes were already strong and they already had quite long fascicles of a level which showed that they weren't at a high risk of injury anyway they still all improved mm. over, I think it was an eight-week intervention that we did. They, they improved um, significantly, meaningful improvements. Both groups did. Not surprising, they did the same volume. But actually, that means that we can, what that tells us is we can implement smaller volumes on a day, on a, not necessarily daily basis, but three, four times per week. You could do it even after, um, after a competition if you've got fixture congestion to maintain that fascicle length and that strength because we know that will slowly decline if we eliminate those types of exercises especially if they're not doing a high amount of high speed running in the games and that way we can still include some of that type of training so that you don't get a detraining effect during periods of fixture congestion etc like that that research is in its infancy we need to see where it goes with the rest of the data and expand on those data sets which we'll be doing over the next year and we're also going to look at how you can implement that across sort of a whole variety of different aspects of training, whether it's for general strength, power, etc. Um, but overall, it's relatively simple to get hamstring stronger. It's just progressive overload, but 
implemented appropriately and not using excessive volumes of eccentric training, which cause, causes soreness and then your compliance drops. And it's no good having a modality that works if the compliance is low, because if they're not doing it, it doesn't work. Mm. I think it's interesting because we speak to loads of players and players more in particular than coaches and they have the, and I'm talking probably more like at a semi-pro level now, but they have the views and opinions that you can't do legs in season, you can't do any sort of leg training in season because they get too sore. So I think you going into that, and it's the same with weightlifting, I think. People have the extreme view of it, don't they, that I can't do it because I can't do a clean, I can't get into a catch position, it's... it's <coughs> It um, hurts my wrists or whatever it is, and there's so much, so many other factors that we're not yep. considering when a, yep. when statements come like that come out, isn't there? Yeah, if, if lower body training in season is making you sore, you didn't do enough training in the off season and in pre season, and your volumes are too high in season. Yeah. Because if you've done a sufficient volume, and it doesn't have to be a high volume, but if you've done a sufficient volume and a sufficient intensity in the off season and pre season, and then you drop that volume but maintain the intensity you won't be sore. You know, there's, there's a huge amount of research out there looking at the repeated bout effects. So the more frequently you do a dosage of exercise, um, the, more you're, the more rapidly your tissues recover from that and the less likely you are to suffer from soreness. So if we've got used to that, whether it's eccentric or concentric or just traditional types of training, it works for the repeated bout effect works for both. If you've done that regularly and then we drop the volume of it, you won't be sore. So someone messed up your training program or you messed up your training program, depending on who set it for you, if you end up being sore. Mm. The danger is what people will do sometimes is think that strength training with high loads is fatiguing. But if you work out the total volume, you do a low volume. And if you look at how you should program strength and power training, the volume should be relatively low. Mm. Um, So if you're doing high volumes, you've got an issue. But if you've gone from strength or power training to what looks more like hypertrophy. So again, you've incorrectly programmed your training, so you're doing a lighter weight, thinking that will be less fatiguing. Because you do more repetitions of that lighter weight, the total volume volume of work, if you do sets times reps times load, um, will be much higher during eight to 12 or 10 to 15 repetitions. That will be fatiguing. Mm -hmm. That might leave you sore, because it's also not what you're used to. And you also need to bear in mind when you change exercises, if you're changing the range of motion you go through, you will pick up a bit of muscle soreness initially. So as you change those exercises, it needs to be conservative initially so you don't end up sore in season. And then everyone says, no, I'm not doing it. But if you've planned everything appropriately, there shouldn't be a major issue. The problem is we know that if you take away a strength training stimulus with sufficient load, that your force production capability decreases. And that will decrease across whatever period of time you're not doing that type of training. So what that means is you might as well not bother doing pre-season training in terms of strength training if you can do nothing in-season because probably within the first six to eight weeks, all those benefits have gone. So you're better for the first six to eight weeks. At the point in the season towards the end where your performance really needs to be optimised, you're now back back to where you were at baseline. Um, the other little bugbear I have is when people say I'm in, a, I'm in a maintenance phase in season well if I was going to interview somebody for a performance role and they told me that 30 plus weeks of a season was maintenance I wouldn't bother employing them because I want my athletes to be the best they can be 
towards the end of the season um, when you know they're hitting playoffs, etc. Depending on what competition they're in, they need to be in their best condition then. But even if you don't think about it from a performance perspective, if the muscles can no longer produce as much force and the tendons aren't as stiff and aren't as strong, you've increased your risk of injury. That's just stupid. Mm. Um, but most of that comes from the fact that the programming of the training is incorrect in the first place. And it needs to be planned, programmed and phased appropriately. And you're not trying to beast people. You're trying to do it so it is progressive. And it's better to do a suboptimal volume of training, which people will comply with and do season long, because you'll still get improvements across the entire season, rather than push them too hard. They then don't want to train in season. You have no stimulus in season. You won't adapt to no stimulus. If anything, you're going to detrain. Whereas at least if there's some stimulus there, they're likely to get better. You'll give them the potential for adaptations to occur. And ultimately, it comes down to your ability to produce force and produce force rapidly to improve performance. So if you're taking away that stimulus, you are going to get progressively worse. Mm. You will plateau at some point and you'll stay, you know, you'll have a deterioration and you'll stay at whatever level your competition is maintaining. But it's certainly not going to be optimal. Mm. I think that was amazing. I think there's some top information in there. Um, I was going to ask if there was anything that you could touch on in terms, I know you've said a little bit about it with the hamstring stuff, but any future areas of research, anything that you could potentially speak about? I know there might be some stuff you can't. Uh, well, lots of different things to do with the hamstrings that we're going to be looking at, uh, different exercises, comparing different exercises, um, initially looking at what happens acutely, so looking at EMG of exercises, looking at the electrical activity in the muscles, so how much it's stimulated, are different hamstring exercises comparable um, also looking at what happens to the fascicles so there's a really interesting but controversial discussion going over on around what does a hamstring do during that terminal swing phase of an exercise of, of running is it lengthening is it isometric the problem is a lot of the stuff that's been put out in the research is based on animal models quadrupeds well, if you look at most quadrupeds, so dogs, goats, etc., that have been using some of the animal models, they have short muscles and they have long tendons. So it could be that in those animals that are uh, quadrupedal animals that run com- in a completely different way to us, that it's isometric for the muscle and lots of lengthening and elastic recoil of the tendon. Might not be the same in humans, but studying that in humans would be extremely difficult. Uh, one thing we are looking at is how we can identify what goes on within the muscle during certain tasks. So we know that if you do sort of um, rebound type tasks, that the calf muscles, so the the gastrocnemius, very rarely lengthen. So they don't go through any centric action. So you land in a plantar flex position, you go through some dorsiflexion, but the muscle might stay isometric or actually shorten which is counterintuitive because you'd think there'd be lengthening because of the change in angle at the ankle. But what's happening is you're getting lengthening of the uh, medial gastroc tendon, Achilles tendon at both proximal and distal end, which gives you a huge recoil of elastic energy, which is brilliant. That could be happening in the hamstring, but it's unlikely because if you look at the length of the Achilles and medial gastroc tendon, they're pretty long. You look at the hamstring tendons, they're generally, but not in everyone, quite short. So... What we're looking at is, if you do a Nordic hamstring curl, is that 
isometric or is it eccentric? We call it an eccentric exercise. It's always referred to as an eccentric exercise. But if you put an ultrasound unit on someone's um, bicep femoris, when they perform the Nordic hamstring curl, you can identify if there is shortening or lengthening going on. And preliminary data that, again, one of our PhD students, Nick Ripley, has got, seems to show that if you're good at performing a Nordic hamstring curl, you get lengthening initially. Before the end of the range of motion, it goes isometric. Maybe that's why you hit that break point. Maybe you're lengthening the tendon, stimulating the Golgi tendon organ, and I'm saying maybe because we can't look at it in that amount of detail and that's what causes that break point and then you fall forwards and there's mm-hmm. nothing you can do about that you fall um, if you're not very good if you put it on me it's probably isometric and that's why I probably only get a small range of motion to go through because then you just get an isometric action of the muscle lengthening of the tendon stimulate the Golgi tendon organ creates inhibition I fall forwards so then how can we change the angle of that and how can we make the Nordic easier or change your orientation so you can go through a fuller or shorter range of motion and progress it. So we're looking at some things there uh, with EMG, with ultrasound, etc., so that we can inform the prescription of those exercises. We'd need to follow that up with an in- training interventions. So let's see what happens if we train the muscles differently. Do they really respond in the way we think they would? Um, some of it is the opposite way around. Some of those studies are, let's look at what happens. Do they adapt? Why are they not adapting in the way we want them to? Let's go back and look at those exercises. Is that exercise really doing what we think we're doing? Um, We're also really trying to look more at some of the methods of assessing performance as well. What's the optimal way of assessing performance? Can we cut down on that time? What variables are most um, sensitive to change and indicative of an enhancement in performance in athletic tasks? So Dr. John McMahon, one of my colleagues, is doing a lot of research around jump testing, um, which are the metrics that are most sensitive. Um, Lots of people tend to now use things like the um, 10-5 test um, to look at your best five jump performance and take a reactive strength index score from it. Nobody knows what the best way is of assessing that RSI. They'll take the best five jumps. But is that best five in terms of jump height, best five in terms of contact time, or best five in terms of RSI? Because you can have a really good RSI with a really short contact time but a really low jump height. So is that really what we're after? We also know if you look at that data, and for anybody that's got the data uh, and collects that regularly, they can probably look and see there's a pacing strategy. The first three or four jumps aren't your best ones. They always come at the end. So do we need to do 10 jumps? Mm. Can we reduce that down? Can we do five and take the best three? Um, so there's lots of things we can look at there to streamline the testing processes because some of the questions we get asked from the majority of sports that we work with and interact with and engage with is we need to streamline testing. Can we do it? So when, if, Especially if you want it for monitoring of neuromuscular function, performance, fatigue, um, in the morning, post-match, post-training, etc., it needs to be really quick and easy to do. So we're trying to look at which different metrics may be better. We know jump height alone isn't sensitive enough because you can modulate your jump strategy. So if you're sore, you might go through a bigger range of motion but take longer to give you more time to apply force to get the same jump height you were getting previously. But if you start trying to unpick the full force time curve, no one's in an applied setting got time to do that. So can we look at counter-movement displacement? Can we look at movement time? Is move, the total movement time sensitive enough or do we need to break it down to the unweighting phase, the breaking phase, the propulsion phase? Again, that might get too complex. You're suddenly introducing a lot more variables. So we're really trying to unpick a lot of different 
areas there so that we can inform both training interventions, exercise selection, volumes of exercise, um, and also how we then effectively monitor it. Because ultimately, we can't tell if our training intervention has been as successful as we want it to be unless we've got the best metrics to compare and that those will relate to performance in that sport. It's no good saying, brilliant, your 1RM's gone up if that doesn't relate to the sporting task. Luckily, there's a strong correlation between 1RM back squat performance in jump, sprint, etc. But that does start to drop off as you get stronger and stronger and stronger. Sounds superb. It'd be great to um, possibly have some of the guys on to talk about their research as well and, and some of this stuff that you mentioned in the episode if, if that was uh... yeah I'm sure I can convince them to, to come down <laughs> and spend an hour or so with you and give you far more insight into some of the stuff that they've been doing um, certainly if you you know Paul Jones with his stuff related to change direction testing etc could speak for hours on that John McMahon's uh, with all the sort of jump testing side of things um, will just blow your mind uh, so, but also not just from a sort of biomechanical point of view, but actually, what's the applied aspects? What's the take-home messages? What do practitioners need? Um, so I'm sure I can convince them to uh, come down and spend an hour here. That'd be amazing. And just finally, where's it? I can put your if you're happy, I'll put your Twitter, Twitter handle on in the show notes. But yep. in terms of your research, where's the best place for people to check that out? Uh, have a look on ResearchGate. That's the easiest way to get hold of most research it, as long as it's not in breach of copyright the full article or a version of the full article will be on there um, if it's embargoed due to copyright that will go on there once um, that period which is anything from about six months to two years depending on the journal that we can then put that on there mm-hmm. um, or otherwise drop me an email or send a request through um, ResearchGate if I can't give you the information because of copyright then I can't but if I can then I'll, um, I'll send it across to you Brilliant. Well, I really appreciate you coming in and talking through all that. I think there's so many takeaways there for the coaches, so thanks a lot for your time. No problem. Huge thank you to Paul for coming on the show. It was great to speak to him. You can go and follow him on Twitter. He's at PaulComfort1975. And there was loads of takeaways for me in this one. It was really hard to try and narrow it down, but I think some of the main ones were where he kept referring to context regarding the lifting program so he gave loads of different examples on what he would do at certain times and that there was no one way that would fit every single program it depends on so many different factors the when he was talking about microdosing nordics i still think that information needs to be out there more and there's still many players and coaches that we speak to that won't do too much of certain elements of training because it causes too much soreness and we need to really consider the volumes that we're doing with players where he spoke about intent intent of lifting I think this is something that um, coaches and players need to be really considering when we're going in and doing any sort of strength training I think when we are carrying out sessions there has to be that intent there and for me this is a, this is just my personal opinion but this is one of the biggest differences between our sport and other sports at the moment in terms of training away from the pitch and then it was great to touch on some weightlifting derivatives as well the variations there's so many variations of weightlifting deriv- derivatives that are out there how no one size fits all so it depends on the program 
And that was just some of the takeaways I I took away. But there was absolutely loads in this episode. I think it was action-packed. It'd be great to hear from you guys on what you took away from it and what some of your biggest takeaways were. So please get in touch. Either drop us an email, mail at footballfitfed.com. You can drop us a message on Twitter or Instagram at footballfitfed. Or get in touch with Paul as well um, and let him know what you thought of the show. We've got a really big show next week. Um, we've got three guests joining us. It's a, it's already recorded. It's a great episode. I'm sure you enjoy it just as much as this one. So please share the show and head over to iTunes, leave a review so we can keep these guests coming. Thank you again for listening and we'll speak to you next week.